So once upon a time, a long, long time ago, when I still went to church on Sundays, um, I heard a message, a teaching being taught, and the pastor said something along the lines of, the reason there are not more prophets in the world is because we lack the imagination. We lack the prophetic imagination. And then he went on to describe the fact that part of the reason why that is is because we're too busy planning every facet of our lives. You know, we say things like, okay, you know, I might take on the adventure of unknowing once I get that degree and then meet the partner, have the kids, the job, the white picket fence. Okay, maybe when the kids are older or maybe when they're in college, actually, you know, no, maybe when we're retired, like maybe then, (laughs) then we'll take on the radical unknowing and be open to divine inspiration and surprise. I was really struck by that message. It impacted my life. I have since thought about that teaching many, many times. It has inspired me to want to live life in a more open-handed way, maybe not make 10-year plans, you know, live in the moment, be completely present, and have a radical commitment to being willing to be interrupted, to be surprised, to be redirected. And, you know, yes, I get it. That's all easier said than done. I mean, trust me, I'm living that right now. And there are many, many nights when I'm waking up and cursing the fact that this is something that I chose. So I get it. But still, the willingness to have prophetic imagination, which is to say the willingness to have creative inspiration break through into your life and disrupt your plans and derail you from whatever it is that you thought your life was going to be about or should be about and place you in a completely different track, heading in a completely different direction. This is a capacity that my guest today has in spades. Darius Baxter and I work together in Project Unite in Washington, D.C. He is an entrepreneur, Forbes 30 Under 30 recipient. He founded Good Projects based in Washington, D.C., They are seeking to empower youth and their families to live fulfilling lives free from poverty while helping them develop the growth mindset to thrive in their own communities. Their mission is to eliminate the roadblocks to basic needs so that families can define success for themselves. Darius has a TED Talk. I have witnessed his speaking gifts in action. The man can grab a microphone and literally get the attention of anyone who's within hearing distance. So I am really excited for you to get to know Darius and hear his story. So without any further introduction, let's dive right into episode 11 on Unknowing with Darius Baxter. So Darius, this is such a treat. It's just really awesome. I'm like, I'm kind of just grinning ear to ear because we worked together for two years. Was it two years or was it three? It's hard to it, remember. It felt like, it felt like a lifetime. A like, lifetime. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's been a minute since we've seen each other. So this is just like a really happy, fun reunion for me. So thank you for being on the show. Thank you for the invite. And the reason we haven't seen each other is because you came to D.C., you had the time of your life, and you're like, if this is going to be my life in D.C., there's no way that I can come back. I'll leave those stories for another podcast, but (laughs) yeah, we we both know why you haven't come back to D.C. (laughs) Oh, man, I can already tell what this show is going to be like. So usually to begin, 
I like to introduce the guest by just giving you an opportunity to share a little bit about the map that you were handed growing up to make sense of your reality. Most of us were handed a set of rules, a set of beliefs, an orientation, experiences that kind of pushed us into the world in a certain direction. So Darius, if you had to describe the map that you were handed growing up, how would you do that? As a young black man growing up in America, not to say that that truly defines my experience solely, but definitely is a huge part of it. And like most kids coming up in my circumstances, I had a single mother that was struggling every single day just to put food on our table, let alone to be thinking about, you know, what is the next five, six, seven years look like? She was worried about the day to day. And I know there's so many, many single mothers and single fathers out there that are going through that same experience. So for my mom, it was always uh, impressing upon my brother and I, uh, and it's from a very, very young age, um, just go to college. Uh, if you can make it to college, everything else will sort of take care of itself. Uh, so from first, second, third grade, and that always was my focus, whether every time I was in the classroom, I was like, I got to get all A's because if I get all A's, then I can make it to a good middle school and then a good high school. And then I'll be able to go to whatever school I want. I was in love with the NCAA basketball tournament. And I would pick the difference. Whoever won the tournament was the college that I wanted to go to that year. Um, but that, that was, that was as simple as the roadmap was for me. Keep my head down, stay focused, do what I needed to do in the classroom and on the sports field. And I would one day be on somebody's college campus. So the true North was get to college. A hundred percent. And then once I got there, I had no idea what to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, no, it was. Okay. Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. But first I want to discuss, You know, one of the things that I like to talk about on the show are these moments of rupture, of sudden disruption, the moments that we can't plan for when there's a giant tear in the map. And these are the moments in which we either double down on the beliefs that are handed to us or we fall through the map and we discover a whole new terrain or we go in a new direction. And I know that one of the most formative moments um, in your life came pretty early when you were nine. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to share that story, that experience of total rupture that happened. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's truly a defining moment in my life. You know, when I was nine years old, my father was tragically murdered. You know, at that time, you know, you're a young kid, you're looking up to your parents, let alone your father, like he's a superhero. You know, he could do no wrong, let alone die. And in the most tragic way, um, the incident happened actually in my, uh, in my home. And I think I know that is, that's something that makes you grow up fast. But at the end of the day, I think one of the greatest things that that moment really helped me in was understanding at a young age that, you know, no day is promised. Mm. And to, to make every single moment, every single second, just count. And not in the sense of like, um, all right, let me get up and try to do as much as I can today. But in the sense of like the last thing that I ever said to my father was, I hate you. Um, mm. I regretted that for so long in my life for the stupidest reason, the most little kid reason. Like we had a bad day at football practice and uh, he was uh, he was really getting on me. And I don't know why I was just mad at him and him and my mother were separated at the time. So right as he's dropping me off from my mother's house, I hop out of the car and you know, I work with kids now, so I know they don't mean that stuff. And I was just like, I hate you. And to him, it was probably no big deal. But, you know, it was definitely something that haunted me. Just having experienced that as sort of our last moment together. I take it as, as, a, as a beautiful life lesson now as an adult. And it's like, first, never leave anyone angry. And to sort of the point that I made, just always cherish every moment you have with somebody. 
you know, most of the times we, we don't give ourselves enough credit. You know, like when bad things happen, we're so quick to turn our backs on one another or to assume that uh, somebody's trying to hurt us or it's malicious. But oftentimes when you just, you just sit down and have a conversation with someone, especially those that you, uh, you care about, uh, you often find that, uh, most people are operating with the best of intentions and that somewhere along the line, uh, the small things we make really big and it ends up putting us miles apart. But that just reminded me to just, it's never that serious. <laughs> and you, you also talk about, and I've, I've, I've watched a few of your spiels now, Darius. I know some of your stories. <laughs> oh my gosh. I got too many stories. Some good ones, some bad ones too. Yeah. But I want to talk about this one really incredibly moving story that you told in your TED talk about the tiny plant growing in the darkness, because as you were describing this perspective, the map that you fell into, or I should say the map that you made for yourself that you created out of the tragedy that you experienced was one of orienting toward the good, the good in people around you, the good in life, you know, the positive outlook. And so I wonder if you could share that story about the little plant, because I feel like it's such a beautiful metaphor for who you are as a person. Yeah, no, that, uh, <laughs> uh, I was interested in one and uh, appreciate you uh, supporting the TED Talk. That was a lifelong goal of mine. So to be able to do that at such a young age is a beautiful experience. I, it was a simple one, very simple story in the sense of I was a young kid, uh, nerding out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> still, I, you like my glasses now, man. I had the big nerdy ones. I was a little chubby and to the point around college and sort of that being the, the lighthouse. Um, I always wanted to not just do well in school, but like be the best. It makes so I had to be the top of my class. So like, here we are, I think, uh, I remember, let's say like the third grade and, uh, it's science fair time. So all the kids are like, coming up with their different science projects. And here I am, like in my little notebook, nerding out. I'm like, I'm going to come up, do a project where I'm going to discover. Um, I wish I had known now sort of where all the uh, the future of botany would go, but I was like, I'm going to figure out what light um, plants grow in the best. And this is this is pretty, all of this like technology stuff. <laughs> it's telling my age just a little bit, but like, I was like, no, like, I'm going to find out the best light. It's going to be like just natural sunlight, I'm going to have like artificial light. And then like something just clicked in my head. I was like, I want to see if a plant can grow in darkness. And these were like the most basic like dollar store seeds you can get like basil or something like 25 cents or whatever I had. And I plant all of these different seeds and just immediately like I'm a little kid. Like this is the greatest science experiment in the world to me. Um, (laughs) Nobody had the gall to tell me any different. So of course, like the one in the natural light started sprouting up doing his thing the one in the artificial light really took off and is doing his thing but for like the longest time this one in the box just like sat there <laughs> like the one that was in the darkness and that wasn't a huge shock to me but i was like you know small chance and like weeks go by um the plants continue to grow but the one in the box never really got a good start until like the very end and it's like maybe like two weeks left in the experiment. And I see like this little really fragile sprout starting to come out of the soil. I'm like, holy hell, like <laughs> I must be a, I must be the superhero now. <laughs> like this is crazy. And breakthrough discovery. <laughs> breakthrough discovery. Plants can grow in darkness. Like what? But as it starts growing more, 
And if anybody ever questions if plants are alive, like this experiment, like did it in for me, like they're clearly living creatures. The plant starts sort of maneuvering along the dirt. I'm like, what? No, why is it going in that direction? And it wasn't until it got a little bit bigger that I noticed it. Like in most shoe boxes, there's a little hole in the side, I guess, to carry it or whatever. But the plant has somehow, I don't know how, sensed this little hole in the box and was actually maneuvering towards it to get more light. And I tell this story in my TED talk, not because like I want people to become botanists, but because I think that experiment for me was one of like the greatest analogies in life. Like it's so easy as a person to just be happy when the sun is shining. You got a cute girl on your arm. You got money in the bank. You know, you're in your beautiful house, nice car, job's going well. You love your boss. (laughs) Like everything's going well so easy to be happy and to be thriving and to be growing but it's those times when we find ourselves like trapped in a box and it seems like there's absolutely no light that all too often we just like completely give up Mm -hmm. um, on ourselves on the people around us on the situations that we find ourselves in where that little sad basil plant like taught me during that experiment that oftentimes all we really need to do is just to just start walking you know, even when we don't know which direction that we want to go in, then I'm, I'm speaking uh, figuratively, but for some people, it might be literal. Um, I don't know what challenges people are going through, but we often find ourselves in these trapped in these spaces. And it's like, I don't know which direction to go. So I'm just going to sit here and wallow in my own pity where you ask about sort of the trajectory and the journey. I've always been blessed to know like, even in my worst moments, when I'm down and I'm out and I have nowhere to go or it seems hopeless, to just keep taking that first step and then the second one and then the third. And then you start to realize very quickly, damn, I'm building momentum. And then all of a sudden you're jogging a little bit and then you realize, damn, I'm sprinting. And now there's people around me that are sprinting with me and supporting me and giving me water around, along the way and carrying me on. And for that plant, I eventually let it out of the box. But imagine a world that plant would have kept going until it reached that hole. Mm. <laughs> it would have. Mm-hmm. And then would have somehow found a way to blossom. But for uh, too many of us, it's like we're just not even willing to take that first step. Mm. I think one of the reasons why I love that story so much as it pertains to you and your example in your life is that you have now dedicated your life to giving kids a bigger hole, (laughs) giving them a way out, giving them the support they need and the sunlight they need to thrive and to succeed. And that story is about resiliency as I listen to it, but it's also about opportunity and about the disparity between opportunities in this country. And you move toward you know, every opportunity that was given to you with that as you are. So you made it to college. You did the thing that you were like set out to do. You wound up in Georgetown and it was shortly after graduating that you founded The Good Project, right? A senior year of college, yeah. It was while you were in college. Okay. So tell us the story about Good and how that came to be and how you decided to jump into this creative venture. We started this conversation talking more about you know how I got started with the tragedy around sort of young Darius being nine and everything that he went through. But I'm grateful for those moments. Like when you experience such hardship at such a young age, uh, again, sort of to the analogy around the plant, you can use that as an excuse as to why you can't be successful or 
you can use that as fuel to be like, okay, I've already experienced at that point what I thought of as the lowest point that one could be in in life, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, physically being homeless and watching my mother struggle and all of those things. And you can use it to beat you down and make excuses why you can't succeed. Or you can use it to be fearless. And I thank my mother for teaching me to be this way. It taught me to be fearless. Even in going to a school like Georgetown University, having all the opportunity in the world, could never have imagined people are going to six-figure jobs right out of college. <laughs> like 21-year-old, like, it's crazy to think about. But like, uh, I knew that wasn't sort of the place that God was calling me to be. God was, has always in my life called me to be a servant. Um, it's not something that I found as an adult. It's always been the case for me. And that's coming from generations of um, my mother, my grandmother, my grandfather, uh, my great grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my brother, my sister, all of us, entire family of servants. And I'm just probably the more public facing one. But you, you look through the entire line of my family as people that are in various roles serving um, their community, um, both in the public and private sector. But here I am in my senior year of college, like, yo, I got to find a way to give back, but I got to do it my way. I've learned too much at this at this Georgetown to not uh, apply a little bit of entrepreneurship to this thing. Um, I, I, I love my again. I love my family to death, but I, I refuse to struggle. You were like, you were like, I'm going to go ahead and make being a servant sexy. That's what I'm oh going to go ahead and do. Sexy as hell. <laughs> sexy as hell. Sexy and lucrative. Um, go on then. <laughs> so it's just uh. To your point, it's just like a cool factor that I wanted to bring to the social impact space. So I got together with a few of my teammates at Georgetown and the three of us set out and we started Good Projects. That very first summer, again, just with the fearlessness, we did a summer camp. It didn't charge a soul to get there. We had about $3,000 that we raised from family and friends and set out to do this camp. Knowing now that we'd never do it that way. Lord knows how much liability we took on, but like <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. But like that summer, I had every reason to quit. Our first day had 70 kids show up to camp. First off, how the holy hell are we going to feed all of these kids every single day? You're coming from a low-income community. Um, we chose the neighborhood we did the camp in based off the gun violence that had been occurring. Um, so they're coming in with all of these issues, all of this trauma, all of this drama. <laughs> and uh, here we were, two guys at the time, just taking it head on. And it's like that old saying, if you build it, uh, they'll come. <laughs> Not only that the, the kids from the community come out, but partners from every which way in the district started pulling up, whether that was the Department of Behavioral Health. Like, hey, we'll come in and we'll help kids work through their trauma. Whether that was uh, at the time, who was our food partner? Revolution Foods came in and said, hey, we'll provide the meals for students and deliver them right to the camp so you don't have to worry about feeding them. And Acostia High School saying, hey, we'll provide the classroom space in the field. So you don't have to worry about paying for a, a venue for the summer. Um, we ended up, you know, a group of college guys with like $300,000 of in-kind resources over the course of the summer, our very first year. Couldn't pay ourselves nothing, but, you know, that wasn't the important part. And, you know, by the end of the summer, we had done this amazing work. Kids have been impacted and there was literally zero, zero acts of gun violence in the community that we were working on the entire summer where the year before it had been like, you know, a hundred. It was absolutely a beautiful experience. And then from there, I guess the rest is history. Like people caught wind of what we had did, the level of commitment that we had put into it. The city know they ain't got us no money for it. So they were like, 
hey, uh, we like you. We like you. Yeah. And like, can you bring this level of innovation to some of these other projects that we're piloting? And uh, from there, that was sort of the first iteration of Good Projects. I'm struck by the level of creative confidence that you would have had to have at such a young age. I know full-grown men, I know full-grown women, you know, in their 40s and 50s who don't have that level of creative confidence to leap forward into the unknown. I mean, obviously, this podcast is about unknowing as a gift, as a necessary practice in order to create something new in the world, that we have to unknow the limiting stories about ourselves and each other, right? So... Let's talk a little bit about that creative confidence. When you look at young Darius and that moment when you conceived of good and really took that leap into manifesting it, were there people around you who were like, you got to just do it? Or was it something inside of you? Was it your faith? Like, talk to me about all the forces that were at play in that moment of really like giving birth to this vision. Yeah, you said not to say the F word, but that, yeah. honestly, I, I can't thank anybody more than uh, a guy by the name of Frank Lutz. Um, <laughs> Frank. He's become a little bit more popular over the last few months uh, for maybe not the best reasons, but you know, I, I have nothing but uh, nothing but kind things to say about Frank. I had an opportunity to meet him when I was uh, about 19 years old. And from the moment that we, we met up, it was just always this love-hate relationship. Love in the sense of, there was always disrespect, but hate in the sense of like Frank pushed me to see the world in a way that I could never see it. And when you're growing, there's always that resentment because our comfortable space is exactly that. Like this is home. It's like, oh, this feels good. Like this is nice. Like oh, this, this is safe. And Frank came into my world like a lot of my mentors have over the course of my life um, and just completely disrupt my safe space and say like, no, I'm not going to let you be complacent um, and, and sit here. Well, but what do you mean? Like, I'm doing so well and people are recognizing me, but no, like you can do so much more. Um, and he was one of, professionally, one of the first people in my life that did that um, and provided me access and opportunity to a lot of spaces. And, you know, you know, luck, luck they say, is when, uh, when opportunity meets preparation. He created a lot of luck for me over the course of the, the years that we were together and he was mentoring me when Good Projects was first getting started. And here we are uh, going into our uh, our sixth year. Um, we just had our anniversary a few weeks ago. And uh, I can say he, he helped set a, a very, very strong foundation. It reminds me a little bit of something a business coach said to me once where she said, what you want is a cheerleader. Deep down, you want somebody who's just going to rah-rah the shit out of everything you're doing and be like, you're so great. Like, you're doing awesome. And just like all positive. She says, but what you need is a doula, somebody who's going to tell you to push even though it hurts like hell because you've got a baby to give birth to. And that's really stuck with me. And I wonder, did you internalize, Frank? Did you learn how to see the best in you? and not be complacent? Because I'm curious about the ways that mentors creatively imprint on us, you know, like we take their voice. Like I can think of the very first experience I had in the recording studio was with a gentleman by the name of Jay Bennett. He's since passed, but he was a part of this band named Wilco. And we recorded in Chicago and he would do the craziest shit, Darius. Like he would like wake me up at three o'clock in the morning and put me down at the bottom of an elevator shaft and fish down a microphone. And he'd be like, I just wanted to hear what you sounded like at 3 a.m. You know, like just stuff like that. <laughs> it's just. But what he was teaching me was the power of the process. 
that the process is the product and to be spontaneous and to be open to doing things differently is a skill in the creative process. So, you know, talk to me about how you internalize into your own inner Frank, that sense of confidence to push yourself, but not so hard that you burn out, right? Because that's also a risk. Well, to the last point, I, 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 can't, uh, I can't sit here like I'm the guru and I've never- You've never burned out. <laughs> yeah, 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 no, no. no. A story for another podcast, you know, there's definitely been periods where I've had to drop out of the public eye and, you know, I've had my run to Africa moment. Think to the question around confidence is it's just, I've always had this mentality of like, you know, what do you have to lose? Like, and I mean that in the purest way possible, like this podcast, as an example, I know we've, you and I have known each other for a while now. And you know, I, don't, I don't say it tersely. I, I literally was possibly like, I'm not gonna say I was the first fan, but like at least first 10, I was in the, I was in the, I was in the early, I was an early adopter. <laughs> people, people look at me like I'm crazy or get annoyed with me at times. And they come to me with like ideas. Everybody has ideas of things that they want to do. And they think that I'm not listening because it's usually a very quick conversation. They'll say, I have this idea of something that I want to do. And I'll just say, just do it. Like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> what do we need to do? Like, mm-hmm. Who we need to talk to? What equipment we need to get? You know, I'll start making introductions for them. And then they'll hit me back like, yo, yeah, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Like, <laughs> we got to slow down. Like, I-, I wasn't ready for that. Or, you know, you're not, you know, you're not, you're, you're not thinking about it. Enough. And I'm like, what do you mean? Like, we're going to figure it out along the way. Like, <laughs> just put it out there. Like just yeah. put it out in the world and everything else will, will take care of itself. And I'm blessed to be uh, the type of guy, not just do as I say, but uh, it's like, no, like I'm living that same lifestyle. At this point, I'm like a, a drug addict when it comes to the opportunity. So I, I'm blessed to be surrounded by an amazing team that, you know, has different opportunities present themselves or I have ideas that it's sort of this funnel that it can go through, which allows me to think even bigger about my visions of what's possible. But when I was first starting out, like so many young entrepreneurs like you when it comes to this uh, podcast, it was just to the point around the analogy around the plant, just putting one foot in front of the other. Mm-hmm. You know, most people are too scared to ever show up to the starting line, let alone run the race. So if you're in that small percentage of people that are just willing to at least start, oftentimes you'll find that you're way more successful than you ever could have thought or imagined. And I'm not just talking about like, oh, I made a million dollars. But just like the internal joy that one feels just for having thought of an idea, having been passionate about something and then put that out in the world to say, I don't give a F what anybody thinks about this. This is me. Yeah, that's such a moment of freedom because there's this sense of deep alignment with purpose. And we're going to talk about purpose in a minute, but this deep alignment with purpose and the sense of being in flow. And you talked about service earlier too, Darius. And it feels like when I think back on the times of um, greatest fulfillment and creative output in my life, it's always been a sense of being of service to the whole in some shape, way or form. It's like something is being channeled through me and there's that sense of flow and there's that sense of like the unique skill set or particular experiences that I have are being put to use in, in a clear way. And I want to talk about, I want to I shift gears and talk a little bit about when we met, which was through Unite in D.C. And I have a couple of stories that stand out for me whenever I think about you, Darius. And I'm wondering if we could talk about two of them. One of them is the oh airport gosh, moment. Oh my gosh, I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, don't worry. The first one is the airport moment. Do you want to share it or do you want me to share it? What was the airport? The airport story, I don't even remember where we were headed or what we were doing. But we were traveling, I think. Uh, 
we were doing some early listening tour stuff and you got a phone call from someone and it was something very upsetting. And, and I don't know that what the circumstances were, but you were like, you lost your shit. I mean, it was like full on, you couldn't even see straight. Do you remember this moment? Yeah, I remember this yeah. moment. <laughs> you start screaming into the phone and not necessarily saying the most pleasant things in the world, but like you're having your moment, right? Like you're, you were like shocked. You're in the moment, like you're feeling anger, like boundaries had been crossed, like you're, you're processing. And then this waitress comes up and she's like, I'm going to call the cops because you were swearing into your phone. So I, I, I just, let's talk about that moment. And then I want to talk about what my reactions were to that moment. But did, do you remember the story? I do remember this story. And you're lucky because most people, will never have the opportunity to to see me upset. So that that is a very unique there's many people in my life that will say I've never actually seen him raise his voice or be upset. So yes, you I, I remember that day very vividly. Yes. So there's a couple of things that stood out for me that day. Mm -hmm. One was the fact that the waitress was so ready to call the cops for no other reason than the fact that you were swearing into the phone. Something concretely and viscerally cracked for me in my privilege as I was stunned by that fact. And like, I remember talking to her and just being shocked at her instincts and de-escalating her while being somewhat conscious that you were back there and you were not okay. And so once that moment with the waitress passed, as crazy as it was, Darius, that moment was really powerful for me and really solidified our friendship because it was this sense that we could see each other in not our best moments and be in the experience together and reciprocally feed each other, right? Because in that moment, there I am, I'm like total Midwest mom. I'm like your older sister, but you dwarf me in size. Like you're way taller than I am. So I'm like teeny tiny and I'm just like, Darius, okay, let's breathe and we're gonna breathe and I want you to feel your feet on the ground. And I'm like basically like teaching you like a, like a two second meditation in the airport. But you trusted me. You trusted me in that moment. We went into that space together and we came out of it different human beings. So you've claimed in the past that this was one of your first experiences when meditation entered your life. So what was your experience of that moment? And then how does having an inner practice matter to you now in terms of how you work? Or does it? <laughs> it? It definitely does. And I appreciate you for even reminding me of sort of that story. I think uh, as it relates maybe to the trauma of my childhood, I think I do a great job of compartmentalizing not always in the most healthy way. So yeah, and I'm proud to say that it was a group of actually people calling me back to back, which is why everybody got cursed out one by one. But I'm proud to say that I'm, I'm cool with all of those people. We worked through uh, our situation. But you know, I think it's all coming back to, maybe you did this on purpose. It's all coming back to sort of the analogy around the plant. In that moment, all I could see was red. All I could mm -hmm. see was red. So mm -hmm to be near somebody that I trusted, for them to have clarity, to your point, for their feet to be firmly planted on the ground. Um, I didn't know which way to go other than to just keep cursing out everybody as they were calling me. And you saw that <laughs> one after another. I didn't want to hear anything they had to say. I mean, it was spectacular. I will be honest. There was a part of me that was just like, I don't want to stop him. This is kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then to your point down the corner, we're going to call the cops. And then I'm telling her to F off because I'm like, leave me alone. <laughs> like I'm over yeah. here by myself. And then um, here you come in the calmest, most caring, loving way that only God himself could bless you with. You're just like, look, we're going to get through this. It doesn't matter what the situation is. 
You can't do anything about it right now. We're here. <laughs> I don't want you to go to jail. Take a deep breath. And you took me through this like amazing breathing exercise. And one that I've had the opportunity to experience with you um, on a weekly basis at points in our life. And it just gave me so much clarity. Was I still upset? 100%. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, was there still some work to do? For sure. Um, but it allowed me to recognize in that moment that anger wasn't going to be the tool um, to fix my problems. And sort of in the same way that you've taught me how to recognize that and then my worst moments, take a deep breath and recognize that I can get through this. I've had the honor of taking sort of those teachings into the work that I do every single day and the projects with the young people that we work with and helping them understand that when they get frustrated and when they get upset, first, they're not the first person ever in history to get angry and upset. I can speak from it, <laughs> my own experiences. Right. Um, but that, and sometimes just taking a five second deep breath and closing your eyes and dreaming of a happy place will help you through that moment. Yeah. It's a yeah, cool experience. It was. And I think the other story that stands out for me is kind of more of an upsetting one on my end, just in terms of just the ways in which you continually expose me and open my eyes to just how blind I still am to white privilege and my own part in systemic racism. The second story takes place in the basement of a colleague of ours. <laughs> we were in line to meet a fairly prominent political figure. I don't know if I'm allowed to say who it was, but... Kind of a big deal. <laughs> and I was in line with you and a couple of your good, good fellas. And first of all, I just want to, I feel like this is really important to clarify for the audience. We were, the four of us, in my opinion, the best dressed folks at that event. Because I, I need a small segue Talk about unknowing. What is up with DC fashion? It's like <laughs> Anne Klein and like Tommy Hilfiger. There's been a monopoly on the wardrobes in DC since the 90s, and everyone is still wearing the same navy sheath dresses and like boring suits. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and this is like the seat of our government, and it's simultaneously the capital of the most unimaginative fashion of all time. Like, how did that happen? I don't know. I, I agree with you. That's some work to do. <laughs> we got some work to do. Okay, so. I digress. We're in line. The coolest people at this party, obviously. And the handlers beeline it over to you guys. And essentially, not so, you know, uh, subtly, are like continually checking in on you and asking like what you're doing in line. And didn't ask me at all. And the whole thing was like not even a blip on your screen. And I'm standing there, but I was getting upset. I was like, what the, are you serious? Like, this is normal? And you guys were just like... Yeah, this is absolutely normal. This is a normal day being young and black and a man in D.C. So I want to ask you about how you look for the good. I want to talk about this constant unknowing that has been forced on you as a young black man in America to have to navigate through all of these micro and personal and violent aggressions all the time. Not to oversimplify it, but from a young age, I always knew that I was going to be shitting on them. Like, to be honest, like to just shoot it completely straight. Like, I can give a damn what, <laughs> you know, some handler mm -hmm. that is drinking the Kool-Aid a little bit too hard. So they want to try to be an asshole to me. Like, I know you're giving me a hard time because I'm the young black man in line. But little do you know, I'm on the Forbes list. <laughs> I'm the CEO of my own company. <laughs> you just see like, Oh, this young, this young black dude, who does he think he is? Like, he doesn't have the right credential, whatever the hell. And I know who I am. Like, it's just such a strong sense of self. 
So it's like when there's people that find themselves for whatever reason getting into my space and they try to put their perception of the world on who I am. Oh, he's just young. Oh, he's just black. Oh, he just talks a certain way. So I'm going to automatically assume that I can dominate over him. I let that stuff roll off my shoulder. <laughs> like, like counting to the way I was raised or whatever, but it just, it rolls like, I don't even think about it. <laughs> I won't spend a second of my day worrying about a person that has prejudice against me. And I've been blessed to be surrounded by a group of people in my life, um, a friend group um, that feels the same way. Yeah, I don't have much more to say about it. Well, not only do you not let it get to you, and this is one of the things I just adore about you, Darius, is that like you take that energy and then you channel it into something creative. So it's like, instead of getting caught up and being angry and like, a, you know, wanting to just be like, screw you, to put it politely, you find a way to channel that anger into action. And I know that that was one of the catchphrases that you used when you started the Purpose Party. So let's talk briefly about the Purpose Party. That moment, which was another big moment of inspiration for you, another big moment of being like, I'm going to go ahead and do this, even though nobody else is like seeing Wait, what I'm seeing. Yeah. So let's talk about that. What was the Purpose Party? What was the moment of conception for you where you're like, this is... This is not only necessary, but I'm going to make this happen. To your question before this, it's just one of those moments. It's actually something that Quincy Jones said that will forever resonate. And to him, it was probably just something very subtle, but something that really spoke to my spirit. He said he sleeps with a notepad next to his bed um, because he never knows when, when God will visit him. And sometimes God even visits him in his sleep. And his whole premise is if God puts something in his heart, or in his mind, that first he has an obligation to put it out into the world, and second, it's already his. Um, so if there's this hit song, you can it's already a hit. Like all you got to do is put it out into the world. But the fear is, is that and this is why he sleeps with the notebook next to his bed. He says, when God has an idea or a plan that he wants to see in the world, he's going to get it done. Um, <laughs> so if he comes and knocks on your door and you don't answer, uh, he'll take it to your neighbor down the street. And in Quincy Jones' case, he lived in Beverly Hills, so his neighbor might be an award-winning producer, too. <laughs> That's the worst thing. You look up and one of your hits is, on, is in somebody else's uh, portfolio. And uh, when I heard that, I think it, it truly embodied sort of how I've always viewed the blessings that God has put in my heart. It's like I'm a creative in every sense of the word. Um, I'll get credit for what I'm able to do in business and entrepreneurship. Um, I get credit for what I'm able to do politically and sort of my past there, but at the heart of who Darius Baxter is, is an artist. I'm blessed that my canvas is people and how people come together in community and the different programs and efforts that I'm able to put forth. But, you know, every day I'm just thinking of different ways to just paint beautiful pictures in the world. And sort of to your question around the purpose party along that same vein, um, I'm sitting in my house and I talk about Quincy Jones when God comes knocking at your door. In this case, it was literally one of my friends came and knocked on my door randomly, uninvited. They called me when they were right up the street like, hey, I had a dream about you and God has a message that he wants me to give to you. And they're just like, God gave me this vision that you were going to paint the country in this moment. I'm like, paint the country? They're like, yeah, physically paint the country. I'm like, what the hell? Like, this is, uh, I'm not, I'm an artist, but I don't really think about no paintbrushes. I'm like, okay, that's cool. And they just keep going, they keep going. And uh, by the end of the night, they had me sold. One of my, my buddy that was living upstairs at the time, he comes down. We're all kind of kumbaya in this moment together. The very next day, I get a call that the Black Lives Matter Boulevard had been painted in D.C. 
So I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, this is my calling. This is what God has called me to do. So I'm using all the political clout that I have. I'm calling around the country to different mayors and people that are connected with the governors that I know. And uh, in the next two or three days, I won't mention what, uh, which cities, but there's certain cities um, that started following the trend. And then by the end of the week, uh, you had uh, Black Lives Matter paintings all in main streets and Martin Luther King avenues all across the country. And I was like, God, I, I, I fulfill the calling. I painted the country <laughs> all from the comfort of my Done. home. Check. Done. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. I did it, God. I did it. <laughs> um, but weirdly enough, there was still this emptiness. And uh, it's like, oh, God damn, like... I did my job. Like, what is the problem here? And just this, this, this voice just kept coming back in my head. Uh, party, party, party. I'm like swatting at it like a flower. Like, what are you doing? Party. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you were with me through that experience. I'm telling people around me, like, hey, I have this, uh, this weird vision, like that I'm being called in this moment to throw a party. <laughs> I had one friend that believed in me. And I told him, you know, I have this weird idea you know, right now I'm just looking out into a world that looks very angry. I'm looking at out into a world that looks very disconnected. And God is calling me in this moment to just be in the middle of the protests that were happening at the White House. People were getting bullied and brutalized and pepper sprayed. And I said, I was, I'm having a calling just to go out there and just with a DJ and just party and just give people something. It won't fix the whole, all of our issues. But I'm just seeing passion that's being misplaced. And I think if we give people an alternative, they'll take the bait. I'll never forget his words. He said, uh, this is going to be big. From there, we went out there on a Saturday, thousands of people around us. We set up our little DJ booth and uh, just started playing. Next thing we know, you go back and you look at the news clips and stuff, uh, no, 30, 40,000 people surrounded us um, and are dancing and are singing and are laughing and are praying, still protesting, but doing it in a way that they were using joy as their, their weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, and our message was simple. You know, you look at my, my life and sort of everything that I've been through, the loss that I've experienced. And again, it's so easy to take all of that pain and the, to put it into something that is uh, destructive. But I took that pain and I turned it into purpose. Um, And I now have the opportunity to lead an amazing organization and have the opportunity to be a leader of men and women that are dedicated to a mission to help others. And I took all of that anger and I turned it into something that was actionable, that wasn't misplaced, but that was to say, yeah, I'm angry as hell. To our point about our story about being in the the airport, I'm angry as hell, but uh, I'm going to plant my feet firmly on the ground. I'm going to take a deep breath and I'm going to figure out a way to put this anger into something that is at least productive. I mean, I'll end with it. You know, that one purpose party in front of the White House ended up becoming a, uh, a 15 city tour <laughs> over the summer of 2020 um, that we, we, we ran and um, we shot a documentary around it. Uh, we ended up getting hundreds of thousands of dollars in funding to do it. Um, and, uh, it was beautiful. It was just, just taking that one step. And then, uh, the second one, then the third, and then, uh, I guess the rest is history. Yeah. In so many ways, it encapsulates so much of who you are in your own map that you have made about what to do 
with anger, what to do with pain. As you've said so beautifully, it's channeling it as passion that can be used as an energy force into creativity, really. And I remember seeing those clips and just like weeping at the power of how you said that, that the protest became a protest through joy. And that that expression of bodies dancing in joy was like the most powerful radiant, explosive, revolutionary element of what I think so much of what that last summer was for our country. And there you were in the middle of it. I'm like, I know him. (laughs) But it was more than that, Darius. It was, I felt connected to the power of the subversive joy and the radical revolution of bringing that alternative space into what is typically, when we think about protest, it's just this shout. It's just this yelling up at a wall almost. And we're yelling at each other. And in so many ways, like your whole life, you've been doing the air. I didn't teach you the airport moment. Like you already had those tools. I just got to be like the companion for the day because in that same way, you were bringing people into their bodies. You were helping them be in their bodies so that that energy could be channeled toward a positive outcome. And, you know, you say, and I'm quoting you here because this is a really beautiful quote, that it's not about what happens to us, but about how we react when those things occur. It's whether or not we have the guts to when it seems like there's no light to grab that little bit of turf in front of us. And while we're face down to start pulling and pulling and pulling until we have the strength to stand. You know what that quote reminds me of is a gospel story in which, you know, Jesus is on the water. It's a famous story. And the disciples see him and they're like, oh, Jesus is on the water. Of course, Peter's like, I'm going to go ahead and do that. So he walks out on the water and he's, you know, going up, up to Jesus and he starts to sink. And Jesus says to Peter, oh, you of little faith. But it's not Peter's faith in Jesus that he's confronting because like Jesus is fine. Jesus is on the water. So like (laughs) Peter wasn't having a faith crisis about whether or not Jesus could walk in the water. He was having a crisis of faith in himself. And in your own life, I see you climbing up out of the boat again and again and again. What gives you the courage to keep believing that you can walk on water, you can do these things, you can follow that in those footsteps of wild, imaginative, creative possibility in this world? I know your uh, your listeners really enjoy this podcast because I'm I'm on it right now. I'm just I'm just loving hearing you speak. It's just beautiful. And there's an eloquence about it. It just is unmatched. Um, it's a uh, it's my mom. You know? it's truly my mom. Uh, and I'm, I'm blessed that I have the opportunity. Our organization grew to a point where, uh, where most kids grow up wishing for the day that they can retire their parents and like buy them a nice house. My mom's a little bit different. I was just really excited for the day that, uh, that I could, uh, hire her and cause she just loves the work, <laughs> especially work in the service of others. And just my entire existence, even now as an adult, um, she's one of my closest confidants. I get to see her pretty much every day. And she's always, even in my lowest moments, just reminding me to always keep my head up. You know, I tell this story. I'm just being a little kid out on the football field and uh, I got hurt and I'm laid out on the field crying. Ah, ah. <laughs> you know, just like a little kid does. They had to roll out all the, the trainers out there, the water girls, all the, you know, everybody's out there. And here comes my mom. And you're a little kid. Like everything's better now. My mom's you know, she's out, she's running out to the field and 
you know, where most moms are like, oh, my God, is my baby okay? My mom, she comes out there, she bends down a little bit. She says, uh, boy, if you don't get up off this field. <laughs> and uh, and I, as hurt as I thought I was, I stand up and I'm hobbling over to the side. She's there with me. And we get home that evening and she says, you know, I don't care how hurt you are. I don't care if your leg is broken. You better get up and at least make it over to the sideline. Don't you ever be laid out on that damn field. <laughs> and, uh, and I know my mother well enough now as an adult to know that what she wasn't telling me something in the context of football. She could give a damn if I was good at football or not. That was an analogy she was teaching me about life. It's like, I don't care how low you are, son, in your life. You better always stand up, keep your head held high and make it at least to the sideline. Come and tell me about your problems, but don't be out there in the world whining and complaining. God didn't raise you to be that way. God raised you to be a leader, raised you to be a king. I know that's not unique to my existence. Everybody has that strength and that power. It's just to your point around the gospel that you share. It's just oftentimes we don't have that faith in ourselves. I'm blessed. It's ingrained in me. I couldn't imagine a world where I don't have that. But for those of us that may not, whether it's this podcast, whether it's uh somebody in their life that they may look up to, a book that they might read. Um, just try to gain that inspiration from it because you'll realize you do it once, it becomes easier to do it a second time, a third. And then you look up and you realize that I'm living a life of just fearlessness and confidence. And that even though bad stuff may happen, that uh, it, it doesn't have to consume the whole person. Um, because in any given day, there's often more beautiful things that happen than bad. I'm so moved by that story, in part because, as you know, I'm a single mom. And this is one of the things that you've mirrored back to me again and again, because you always ask me about my kids. You always ask me about the boys. And you have that radar because it was part of your experience. But the power of mirroring back that resilience and courage and worth is making me feel in this moment the importance of not thinking that we're in this alone, you know, that we are communally giving birth to new ideas. Yeah, we might be the particular channel for one expression, one entrepreneurial vision, right? But we don't arrive at anything on our own and we co-create together, we collaborate together. There's not a record I've made alone. I mean, it's all collaboration from the producers to the other instrumentalists to the, you know, I mean, it's always a process, a joint process of community. And the power of what I feel you're inviting us into in this moment, Darius, is to recognize that we can be, at times, Peter in the story, sinking and being like, oh, I just can't, I can't, I can't do it, I can't, I can't do it, <laughs> you know, out on the field, like, don't make me stand up, I can't, you know, falling apart. And I'm, I'm not speaking from experience, of course. I don't whine ever or totally fall apart. or get Of course not, of course not. No. So sometimes we're Peter. Right. And sometimes it's the people in our lives that mirror back to us like, hey, you have little faith. Get back up. You got this. You can do this. You can do this. If I can do this, this is kind of what I imagine Jesus was looking at Peter like with that look of like, boy, if you don't get up off this field, if you don't get up in this water right now, because it's like I'm picturing Jesus being like, hey, if I can do this, you can do this. That to me is the spirit of what Jesus stood for and what I feel so much of his message is, is the sense of like participate Get in the game. Be part of the team in manifesting this new reality. 
So sometimes we're Peter, but sometimes what I hear you saying is sometimes we get to be the Jesus mirror of like mirroring to other people their own capacity and worth that is so much more than they imagine they can be or have. 150%. And it's ironic that you touch on this uh, because there's so many times just in my day where I have the opportunity to be that light for somebody else. And I know that in your day, you there's so many times, again, back to the airport, where you have that opportunity to be that light. And that's sort of the responsibility because, you know, there's days as, as, as confident as we may be, there's days where we're down and it takes somebody at that perfect time coming into our life and just picking us back up or calming us down and helping us do a breathing exercise to get us back on track to then be the best version of ourselves. So sort of be adverse to it is in those in the Jesus roles that there is a selfishness when when you're blessed with um, peace of mind, when you're blessed with joy, um, when you're blessed with resources or opportunity. Um, there's a selfishness to just hold that for yourself and to keep that to yourself. The same way there's a selfishness when we may not even realize it when God blesses us with an idea or creativity and we don't manifest that into the world. Um, it's almost a smack in the face. <laughs> Humans, at the end of the day, we're all innately connected with one another. Um, and I don't mean just through the internet, the energy that connects each and every one of our beings. So we have this responsibility, again, to sort of what I shared previously around when, when God provides you sort of with these sparks and you bring them into the world. And then you realize, oh my gosh, there's another one and then another one. And you see them start to snowball. And then you look up and you're like, oh my God, why am I doing all of these things? There's like this... Uh, responsibility that when God gives us this overflow, that we then have to share that with others. Um, and not enough people recognize that. And I don't mean like Jeff Bezos yesterday. Oh, thank y'all for paying for my space flight. Here's $200 million um, that I'm just going to throw away with a smirk on my face. That's not what I mean. <laughs> I mean, like when it feels like we have nothing left to give, but we just still give anyway. You know, that's truly where the blessings come. It's such a creative principle, what you just named. I mean, it's true of, of art, but it's also true of love, that even when we think the well is dry, there is always more. There's more opportunity, more possibility, more connection that can be found, more unimagined potential that can be tapped into. And living in that state of abundance versus a scarcity mindset is so much of what I think, you know, unknowing the scarcity is so much of what I think we have to do to be able to live into that state that you're describing, both of love and creativity. And Darius, I, I, it's like I, I, I could talk to you all day about all of this, but I like to kind of wrap up by asking, where are you being invited into unknowing these days? Like, what are you being invited to let go of? What stories or limitations or ideas are you shedding in order to make room for something new in your life? So many different areas, but it's just sort of a constant practice. I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable at this point, whether it's, uh, you know, I recently fell in love. This woman is just absolutely amazing. Um, it's, uh, it's new for me to be this vulnerable to somebody or definitely be <laughs> be in a public in engagement like this, talking about the love of my life. But that's just how amazing it is. And I'm falling into that. I'm doing that sort of headfirst. The work that I do with Good Projects, 
every single day, there's a level of unknowing. Um, when you talk about a big audacious goal, like supporting 500 families uh, out of poverty, especially in a defined set of time, like we have when we push towards 2030, that goal is so lofty. <laughs> now we're talking about families with an average income of about $15,000 a year, and we want to get them up to about 80000 uh, over a nine-year period of time at this point. We're talking about $32 million that we need to generate a year to be able to hit our goal. Um, you know, I'm 27. <laughs> I'm, I'm blessed if I got $3,200 in my savings account, you know, like, and I'm talking about creating $32 million of wealth for families. Like, but inshallah, I know it'll happen. Um, but then just, you know, just being to bring it full circle, you know, just being a young black man in America, you know, to, to sort of the experiences that you've seen in my life, you know, I let bigotry and hatred roll off my shoulders, but I'd be lying to myself and to the audience if I didn't say, uh, you know, I'm scared sometimes. Hmm. And, you know, the world is as quickly as they'll build you up, um, the world will look to break you down. And for as much as I'm being, as much as I'm scared of being, you know, harassed or assaulted or abused or worse by a police officer, I'm scared of those same things for my own community. Just in the last few weeks, we had a, a six-year-old girl that was shot multiple times here in D.C. Or right outside of a Nationals game, um, a shooting took place. And I walk into these environments every single day. Along that same gospel you shared about Peter, um, my favorite line that Jesus threw out there is, you know, just peace be still. Mm-hmm. You know, just peace be still. So it's like even in the midst of the storm, there's always a storm brewing. I think I found a a solace to, you know, you're teaching me how to meditate. I find solace in a very noisy world. And uh, this allows me to joy, enjoy, uh, you know, not knowing what the future holds. It's, it's literally a joy that comes with that. For all of the ways that you embody the courage of fearlessly moving into the unknown, not just for your own sake, Darius, but for the sake of others, and the ways that you invite us to not be selfish with our creativity, with what we have to give to one another, to making this world a better place. I am so thankful that you are in my life, but thank you for being on this podcast today, Darius. Thank you so much. The feeling is uh, absolutely mutual. No, I just, I just know, uh, I know this thing is gonna continue to grow. Thanks, Dee. So we're learning how to trust our inner experience, rely a little bit less on the maps that we are given, and move courageously into the territory of unknowing, which is where that prophetic imagination exists. Here are a few pieces of True North wisdom that I'm taking with me from this conversation. Okay, this first one kind of makes me laugh, but this is what came to me, and this is what I wrote down. Um, When Darius said that he wasn't just going to be a servant, And again, that language is very much of the Christian church territory, but still, he's like, I'm going to be a sexy and lucrative servant. (laughs) And the reason I'm taking this as true North wisdom is because we have this, I'll call it a hangover. We have this hangover from the blueprint and architecture of belief that many of us inherited from, say, religious childhoods, looking at you, Baptist missionary kid experience that I had where we think that in order to do good in the world, we have to suffer and we have to like 
you know, I don't know, become like Franciscan monks or Mother Teresa. And nothing against Franciscan monks or Mother Teresa, but like, you can still be you and do an incredible amount of creative good. You can still be like sexy and flashy and funny and you can still have a sense of humor and you can still wear flamboyant vintage clothes, hypothetically speaking, and do passionate, good, creative work in the world. You don't have to leave behind every facet of who you are. I think many of us inherited a little bit of an anti-body worldview from some of these religious upbringings, once again, looking at you, Christianity, that have bled into our adult lives as we think about how we can do what we love while also making sure that what we do is impactful in a positive way, in a constructive way, in terms of social transformation or ecological responsibility. So to quote Darius, you can be a servant and you can be sexy at the same time. I know I just blew your minds. Second piece of True North wisdom I'm taking with me. I was really struck by Darius's story about Quincy Jones and just the willingness to pay attention to that little nudge of inspiration or that nudge of like, hey, you should go do this thing. Because I know that whoever you are out there listening, I know you've had an experience like that. And I know how easy it is for us to just gloss over and be like, oh, I'm sure someone else out there is going to do that thing. Or I'm sure somebody out there is going to like follow up on that purpose party idea. Elizabeth Gilbert has written extensively about this phenomenon in her book, Big Magic. And she actually says that, listen, inspiration is looking for willing and able hosts to bring it into fruition. If you don't respond, it's going to go somewhere else. So I am taking that with me in terms of taking it seriously, listening to those nudges and being willing to put myself in the position of being ready for that inspiration to strike. For me, this is where contemplation and creativity come together. Your meditation practice, your practices of self-regulation are actually that which help the circuitry of your body and soul be willing and able to receive a higher voltage of inspiration when that lightning strikes. So I don't do stillness for the sake of stillness. I am not into self-emptying so that I can be empty. I do those things so that I can be ready to receive and then channel that energy into something creative. That's it for today's episode. If you're enjoying these conversations, I'm going to invite you to co-create them with me. Here's how. You can become a patron. Patrons are with me on the journey. They're the only reason, the only reason this show exists is because of patrons. So if you want there to be a season two, become a patron. And patrons also receive all kinds of exciting goods. I have designed a corresponding course that goes with each episode of the podcast. So each episode has a companion reflection and um, journal prompts and suggested practices. We are in it together. We're a community. We are chatting with each other, sharing ideas and resources. To find out how to become a patron, visit unknowing.org. Unknowing also has the capacity to now receive tax-deductible donations. So if you'd like to make a donation, check out unknowing.org, and there's a button that takes you straight to a donation form that you can fill out. And finally, as the poet Rilke says, be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves. I'm trying right along with you.